Hello and welcome to the Talking Indonesia podcast. I'm your host, Dirk Tomsa from La Trobe University. Today we are talking about violent extremism in Indonesia, especially the questions why and how women become radicalized and decide to join extremist religious networks. Like elsewhere in the world, religious extremists in Indonesia are still mostly male, but in recent years more and more women have made headlines in the context of Islamist terrorism. For example, at the time when the Islamic State was at the peak of its power in Syria, substantial numbers of Indonesian women traveled, or at least tried to travel, to the ISIS-controlled territories to experience life in the Caliphate. Many of these have now returned to Indonesia, where they pose a serious security threat. Another major source of concern are migrant workers who radicalize while working overseas. What drives these women to join extremist religious networks? What roles do they play in these networks once they are fully immersed in them? And what can we learn from existing patterns of radicalization to formulate more effective policy responses to the spread of violent extremism? In today's podcast, I will discuss these and other questions with Nava Nurania from the Institute for Policy Analysis of Conflict in Jakarta. Nava has conducted extensive research on violent extremism in Indonesia, especially on extremist use of social media and the role of women in extremist organizations and support groups. Nava, welcome to the program. Thank you. Uh, it's nice to be back at Talking Indonesia podcast. Yeah, indeed. Welcome back. It's your second time. So, yeah, really glad to have you again. We are talking today about women um, in extremist organizations and one woman was mentioned just recently in the media as uh, to be confirmed as one of the perpetrators of a suicide attack in the Philippines um, earlier this year. So last month, the, both the Indonesian and Philippine police confirmed that the bombing in Jolo in the Philippines in January was the work of an Indonesian couple with links to an Indonesian terror group, Jama Ansharu Daula. Um, were you surprised to hear that A, the perpetrators were Indonesians and B, that a woman was involved, that they were a husband and wife team? Yes, I was surprised because we just didn't know how many Indonesians exactly were in southern Philippines. But on the other hand, it was not very surprising because this is not the first time there is a suicide attack uh, in the Philippines. Actually, for a long time, the main armed groups in, in Muslim Mindanao, the MILF and MNLF, never conducted a suicide attack. The first suicide attack in the Philippines was in 2018, and it was done by a foreigner, a Moroccan German. Mm-hmm. And so in January this year, when the Philippine government mentioned that an Indonesian couple committed the attack, we were not very surprised because yeah, usually foreigners did the suicide bombings in, in the Philippines. The reason why there hasn't been that many suicide attacks in the Philippines is, uh, well, some, some scholars say because of the warrior culture in you know some tribes in, in Mindanao. But I think it's also because of uh, the fact that, you know, they're the secessionist movement, they need to maintain their territory and community so they can't just waste lives for suicide attacks. Mm-hmm. You said you don't know exactly how many Indonesians are in the Philippines. Since 
that announcement by the police. Has there been any more information around whether there are other Indonesians now known to be in the Philippines? At least we know that the number is very small compared to those who left for uh, for Syria. So um, it's mm. less than two dozens. That's the figure that came from the police. Okay. Yeah, you mentioned the comparison travel to Syria. The perpetrators, they had at least tried to Syria. That They were one of those uh, various Indonesians who had been attempting at least uh, to join the Islamic State there. That's similar to the last large suicide attack that we had in Indonesia last year in Surabaya. In view of those two attacks in the last couple of years, how do you assess the current security risk posed by these Indonesians who have either been to Syria, the so-called returnees, or those who tried but were then stopped in Turkey um, and were then deported back? Well, in general, I think the deportees could pose more risk than the returnees. I know that there's a general assumption that returnees are very dangerous because they have the skill, experience and legitimacy, also international contacts to strengthen the local groups in Indonesia. However, it there aren't that many returnees that we know. In 2018, uh, the police estimated there were 100 returnees, but it turned out that most of them were not real fighters. Many of them were human, humanitarian workers that worked with Salafi or other you know, Islamic groups, mm-hmm. but not necessarily trained fighters. On the other hand, we have over 500 deportees, including women and children. And, and these deportees, they haven't had a chance to be disillusioned by what they saw in Syria. So they were aborted in the height of their spirit to, to go to Syria to conduct jihad there. Mm. So, um, yeah, I, I think they could pose more risk. For example, in 2018, two deportees were arrested for planning a suicide uh, attack. And also in 2019, of course, the Holo bombers were Indonesian deportees. Yeah, we might come back to that issue of returnees and deportees a bit later. But there are, of course, also a large number of other extremists in Indonesia who have not even tried to to get to Syria, including Mm -hmm. many women. And some of your most recent research has revolved around these women. How did you approach this type of research? How did you find the right um, interview partners? How did you find the right access into these networks? Yeah, so I I first started in early 2015 when pro-ISIS groups in Indonesia were still campaigning out in the open. So they they went to the car-free day on Sunday morning in central Jakarta with the you know ISIS flags and so on, but not many people knew what it was. And they did the campaign in uh, some mosques in Jakarta as well. So I went there, I, I introduced myself as a researcher, I talked to some of the clerics and some of the women there, and it was just kind of a snowballing effect that of, so from this com- little pro-ISIS community in Jakarta, I got to know other um, ISIS sympathizers who turn out to be migrant workers, mostly women in Hong Kong, Singapore and other places. So it's combining what I observe in social media and also interviews uh, offline. Yeah, and in some of your research, migrant workers feature quite prominently. I read one of your articles that you published last year, which discusses specifically the issues of female extremists. Why are migrant workers so important to this issue? Are they particularly vulnerable and open to the ideas of extremist groups? The most interesting thing is that this never happened in pre-ISIS era. So the recruitment of migrant workers only started with ISIS. It's partly because of the sleek global social media promotion of ISIS, which never happened before. And the migrant workers are vulnerable 
because they're uprooted from the community, so they have uh, and then they have 24 hours access to the internet, which you know you don't have in the villages where they came from in Indonesia. So and they're also very important because they serve as the hub in this you know the global ISIS network. So they because they speak English, they speak Arabic, and you know more fluent foreign languages than the Indonesian supporters. So um, they, they connected the local groups in Indonesia with jihadists in Europe, in, in Middle East. And they also play a role in financing because compared to average Indonesians, they actually, um, especially in those regions that become the centers of uh, migrant workers, they actually are better off. They make more money. And so they play a role in financing. And because of their location in Hong Kong, which is the hub, so uh, they facilitate uh, Indonesians who want to go to Syria via Hong Kong. So they would pretend as tourists in Hong Kong so to avoid suspicion of the you know, immigration. And so um, th- these migrant workers, they took them around in Hong Kong, pretended to be tourists, and then off to Syria. And they also married some of the foreign fighters, both from Southeast Asia and also uh, other, other parts of the world. Mm, sounds as if they play a rather strategic role in the network rather than being just slightly vulnerable. Yes, but but also I I have to uh, mention that the number is actually very small. So, for example, in Hong Kong, you have over 100,000 Indonesian workers. And only uh, when we did the research, uh, you know, uh, there was only, you know, less than 100 people that were radicalized into ISIS. Yeah, I see. And you mentioned that only started with ISIS. So just for context, so that means that organizations that were largely active before, like Jamaa Islamiyah, for example, or even before that, they didn't target migrant workers as such? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, no, they didn't target migrant workers. And even in JI, women didn't have you know, such a big role. Then uh, in, in JI, women couldn't even give their Pledge of Allegiance directly to the leader. They had to do it through their husbands or fathers. But now with ISIS, it kind of like there's this new empowerment of women, so to speak, uh, in the in the jihadist groups. And the way you describe it already seems to indicate that you do not subscribe to this assumption that women are rather weak elements within the network and they only join extremist groups because they're easily brainwashed. To be sure, some of the women were not, um, were probably just victims, for example, those who who have got married and then later in their life the husband suddenly joined ISIS. But most of the women, at least this you know this generation of jihadis, joined the extremist groups voluntarily. They were not forced or alert by the men. So I think it's an oversimplification to say that you know male extremists married or dated women uh, to to lure them into the extremist groups. In in many cases that I found, women actually knew uh, ISIS, they got to know, they got attracted to ISIS first, and then they deliberately look for network online community, and then when they want to get married, they find husbands that they think are very ideological. So that's why even if some, uh, you know, single women wanted to marry uh, terrorist convicts from ISIS because they think that these men already proved their commitment. Did you find any major differences between the migrant workers and the non-migrant workers back in Indonesia in the way they were attracted into radical ideas? Well, actually, it's not really uh, that different. What's probably different is that uh, in Indonesia, you have big networks like Jamaah Ansarul Daulah, 
we have offline gatherings, whereas in Hong Kong, they did not have big leader, extremist leaders, so they mostly do it online. And in Indonesia, for example, even though some of these women first got to know ISIS from social media, Facebook or websites, it's not that hard to find study groups or other venues for offline meeting. Whereas those in Hong Kong, a lot of those you know, who've joined ISIS for a few years, they didn't really have face-to-face contact until they come back to Indonesia. This includes the two women, Dian and also Ika, who were going to commit suicide bombing in December 2016. And this was the first known case of female suicide bombers in Indonesia. So Ika was working in Hong Kong. She was radicalized since 2013. And then she was just doing what she called financial jihad. So sending money to finance operations. She was recruiting the bomber as well through Facebook, through Telegram. And then once she was deported from Hong Kong, she decided to volunteer herself for a suicide operation. Um, I'm interested in the sort of the time span, right? Radicalization is not something that happens uh, within a couple of weeks or so, right? Um, yeah. So if we start at the beginning and look at this woman who work overseas, are presumably embedded in some sort of community of other migrant workers, and the overwhelming majority would not be radical, right? So what makes some decide to be interested in this? Are there specific factors that trigger an interest in extremist ideas? Are there common patterns that you could identify between the various people that you interviewed for your research? So there are two things. There's the personal and also the social or circumstantial factors. A lot of you know Indonesian migrants in, in Hong Kong, they suffer from exploitation, from harsh working conditions. So it's common that they experience some sort of religious yearning or spiritual revival, uh, usually after they experience personal crisis like divorce, or you know they they're in debt, uh, they have a lot of debt, and some of them just wanted to repent, or because they feel empty. This happens to Indonesian students as well, uh, not just the migrant workers. Now, in Hong Kong or in other places where there's a huge Indonesian migrant community, there's also usually a big variety of social grouping. So uh, there are so many Islamic groups in Hong Kong, but most of them are, are moderate um, and they're actually empowering these migrants. But the, the difference is that when these women choose to solely find information online on Facebook, and if they already have, you know, one or two ISIS sympathizers in their network, then it's easier to find, you know, like extremist information. But in, in many cases also, even though they have options, you know, of many Islamic groups that they can join, uh, they, they're usually uh, few of them attracted to ISIS if they have big humanitarian motives. So they, they're impatient to help fellow Muslims. They think that, you know, just merely studying Islam, doing study groups, it's not enough because they want to do something real for Muslim victims in other parts of the world. Then that's where uh, that's usually this kind of humanitarian motive would you know, send them uh, further down the path of extremism. So you mentioned before that the online sphere, social media, plays an important role in how migrant workers especially become radicalized. So once they are exposed to these ideas, what's the next step, basically? Is there something in particular that you could find from your research that makes women step over the line from just reading radical material to actually trying to become a part of a group and doing something actively? 
Yeah, it's usually when they form close relationship with other ISIS members, either you know, either friendship or marriage. Marriage and e-dating, especially, are the things that really uh, entrap the women in the group. Usually, once they get married, so it's it's getting it's becoming harder for you uh, to leave. Assuming that once you're in, you you have someone who has sort of drawn you in there, and that social media um, also plays an important role, but many of them would still be exposed to competing offers, so to speak, competing ideas, right? There's not just ISIS around. You said before, Jamal Slimia didn't do it that way. But I think these days there are other groups that also try to recruit migrant workers in particular, but also others in Indonesia into their networks. So... The lure of the caliphate is quite strong for women, you said. They wanted to experience life there. That's something that others don't really offer, right? Is that the main difference, why people choose ISIS, why women in particular choose ISIS? Yeah, so we've seen people moving from, you know, other extremist groups like the Darul Islam or Hizbut Tahrir into ISIS. Not that many, but, you know, there's some. They say because... You know, Hizbut Tahrir, for example, has been preaching about caliphate since 1950s, but they haven't, you know, established anything. So they want something more real, which is ISIS. Yeah, well, those who do decide to join ISIS, not all of them will become suicide bombers, right? There are other tasks, so to speak. There are other um, attractions for people. As you said, the, the life in the caliphate was a big factor for many. So can you explain to us a little bit of what roles women play in an extremist organization such as ISIS? What does gender segregation in a group like ISIS look like in view of the fact that you said earlier on there's a sense of empowerment for women now within this group as compared to, for example, Jamaa Islamiyah? Uh, most women in ISIS, the same as other jihadist groups, they don't become combatants. They still play domestic roles as mothers, you know, or, or teachers, educators. That's still their main role. But lately, because of social media, so you know, it kind of levels the playing field for men and women. Women who were previously stopped from, you know, public interaction in extremist public space, but now they can do it through Telegram, Facebook, and etc. But there's also a, a dilemma for women. Because uh, especially for those who really actively try to join ISIS or other extremist groups, sometimes they become disappointed once they're in it. Even some women who went to Syria, they were disappointed to find that, oh, so turn out we just stay at home or, or to the mosque. Mm. We don't really do anything exciting. So there is that kind of dilemma. So that's why some women kind of navigate this gender segregation. But mostly they still do things like, you know, fundraising or helping the families of, of convicted terrorists or martyred terrorists. So that's still kind of the safe role that most women play. Only a few of them chose the, you know, the violent path, becoming suicide bombers or, or combatants, because it's still very difficult, even in ISIS in Syria. It wasn't until you know, late 2017, when ISIS was getting weak, that they allowed women to, to join in the battle. So it was out of desperation rather than desire to empower women or, or give them more active roles. Yeah, and that sort of feeds into the trajectory in Southeast Asia as well, right? So only last year did we see the attack in Surabaya, which was perpetrated by a family, like a couple and their four children, and now the Philippine attack earlier this year with this couple. So 
is this a continuation of this desperation that ISIS had, what you said, around 2017? So maybe we be seeing more of this. Uh, yes, because even though there's still a debate, you know, a religious debate, even among the jihadist community, whether female suicide bombing is allowed, uh, but it turned out that once, you know, one or two women fucked the, the trend and others just followed. So it turned out that role models are more important than fatwa. This is what we've seen, you know. So you've seen uh, female suicide bombers in Iraq, and then you have one in Indonesia. Even the one in Indonesia, the plan for female suicide bomber happened before the ISIS allowed women to do so. So, um, yeah, it's the the existence of role models and kind of the, this white attention from mainstream media and also on social media really highlighted that you know, it's now allowed. So not only Indonesia, in Sri Lanka, you've also seen the woman who blew herself up before getting arrested by the police. You've seen, you know, a couple of cases in Indonesia uh, this only this year, you know, when, when the police have arrested the husband and then they came to get the wife and then they blew themselves up or quit, committed suicide before the police can question them. If we talk about the impact of these kinds of role models, what kind of dimensions are we talking here? How large is the the group of ISIS supporters or activists uh, in Indonesia and how many roughly of them are women? Are there any numbers available? I don't know exactly what's the number, but if you look at just from their online community, I think it's in the thousands and probably uh, roughly half are, are women at least. I mean, those are the kind of broad, broader sympathizers. The, the people who are really committed are, I think, small in number. So if you have, for example, returnee or fighters who return from Syria, they won't be short of uh, new recruits. Hmm. And there are still quite a few Indonesian fighters in Syria now. I saw a report the other day that in some of the camps there are just under 3,000, I think, foreign fighters waiting to be taken back to their home countries, but many of the home countries don't really want them back. And there was a case of a, an Indonesian woman who died in one of the camps. Do you know what the situation is like? What's the number of Indonesians that we know that are still in some of the prisons and the camps? And yeah, what's what's going to happen to them? According to many reports, you know, media reports, there is about 200 Indonesians still spread out in, you know, many camps, including Al-Hol, Roch, and Ain Isa in, in Syria. And um, they're, they're mostly women and children, whereas the men are in Kurdish prisons. And right now, Indonesian government still haven't decided whether they will take them back or not. You know, one of the considerations is that it's difficult to do an assessment. Well, ideally, you wanted to take back those who are less radical or who's, who's already disillusioned. But the fact is that it's not easy to go there. One is diplomatic issue because Indonesia has good diplomatic relations with the Assad government in Syria. So, um, you know, even getting into the Kurdish territory is difficult. That's why when we had, uh, you know, the, the 18 returnees in 2017 that was facilitated by the government, they had to ask the Kurdish, the SDF, to take those people to Iraq so they can pick them up. And I think the situation in these camps and prisons is also precarious because they're in Kurdish territories. I'm not exactly sure what the Turkish government is planning at the moment, but is it conceivable that if conflict from the Turkish side escalates again, that the people in these camps will 
basically have a chance to get free again? Even if they will have an opportunity to run away, I doubt that many of them would want to return to Indonesia. So it's not just, you know, the Indonesian government opinion. It's from the FTF family's point of view as well, because some of them are still very uh, ideological. They still believe in this kind of, you know, end of the world narrative, the Imam Mahdi that would come in Syria. So they don't want to go home. Hmm. Uh, or, or even if they're already disillusioned, they're still afraid of getting imprisoned if they go back to Indonesia. Uh, so maybe uh, I suspect that, you know, many of them would be interested in looking for other places to leave, other jihad fields, for example, in Afghanistan, in Khorasan, or even just to leave somewhere near, near, near Syria. And for those who do want to come back, as you said, the Indonesian government is a bit reluctant. But are there specific programs in place, how to reintegrate them into society? Or will they go straight to jail, basically, when they're coming back? Yeah, well, th there have been some programs, but this is all ad hoc because of the flow of returnees since early 2016. Uh, now there's been over 500 deportees coming back since 2017. So the government, you know, the, the Detachment 88 in cooperation with the uh, Social Affairs Ministry have tried to do de-radicalization for or reintegration program for these deportees. But, you know, it, it's not binding. So they mostly were just in the social affairs shelter for less than a month. Uh, and then they would go home to their city of origin and there's no follow-up program. I think You could use the existing deportees or even the children of the Surabaya bombers who are still alive, they survived, as a pilot to do kind of this de-radicalization or reintegration program. Mm -hmm. And even, you know, the Surabaya children, the government haven't found sustainable solution for them. They've been staying at the government shelter for a year and they haven't got a foster families or anything. So um, I think what government could do is just have a pilot project either from take some, you know, a family, for example, from the Kurdish camp or existing um, children of the terrorists and do a kind of a reintegration program for them. Mm. And beyond those who have been or have tried to uh, travel to Syria, there's, of course, also the contingent of homegrown um, extremists. Do you think the Indonesian government is in need of overhauling its programs there as well or are they doing well i think the government have been doing relatively well in, in, ter in terms of uh, tackling terrorism the bigger problem now i think in indonesia is this growing intolerance and also majoritarianism this is something that you know you can't just uh, solve by having law enforcement law enforcement is good for terrorists but what about other types of islam is there non-violent hmm. this is the, the issue that is growing and the, gov the government is still grappling with yeah, yeah, yeah and for the last question perhaps the migrant workers that featured so prominently in your work what do you think the indonesian government can do for them to make them less vulnerable to extremist ideas This program cannot be detached from other programs that are aimed at empowering migrants. So, for example, there is pre-departure training program. I think it should be incorporated in that program. Once they arrive in the, you know, the destination countries, I think they could benefit from uh, initial orientation program that would explain their rights mm. and also what kind of support system they can have. 
And um, this is, I think, something that's still that's still lacking. Now, some some NGOs, for example, the Peacebuilding Institute, have tried to do kind of a film screening uh, to spark discussion about extremism among the migrant workers in Hong Kong. But, you know, one or two NGOs uh, is not enough. It has to be a comprehensive solution to this. Yeah, and the government probably needs to be involved yeah. in that as well. Yeah. yeah, There's a lot more we could talk about, but I think we've reached the end of our time slot for today. So, yeah, thank you very much for these insights, Nava. Thank you. That was Nava Nuranya from the Institute for Policy Analysis of Conflict in Jakarta, speaking with Dirk Tomsa on the Talking Indonesia podcast. Please join us again on the 22nd of August for the next episode of this podcast. You can find the entire archive of the Talking Indonesia podcast at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog, or you can subscribe via iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thanks for listening, and till next time.